his love is, is truly relentless. Mm. And when he says, when we sing, it's, it's reckless. It's, it's not that it's, it's reckless in that it's, it's dangerous. It's more like it's, it's reckless because God has, has, has little regard for his own self-preservation when it comes to his love. He has no regard to his self-preservation when it comes to his love for us, for you, and for me. If you're just joining us this morning, we are in the second week of our series called Plan A, uh, God's purpose for us, our community, and beyond. And Pastor Phil set up the series uh, wonderfully this, this past week, and he asked us a, a, a powerful question. Why, why do I exist? What's, what's my purpose? And we talked about that since the beginning of time, God has placed a purpose. He's placed significance on us because of his great love for us, his unconditional love and pursuit for us. And because of that, we now respond. We reciprocate that love to other people. So in this overarching uh, theme throughout history, you see God's reckless pursuit for people. Because in each stage of history, he has created us for a relationship. In the beginning, in, in the garden, we saw what our relationship should have been. How it was created with oneness with God, in perfection, in connection with God. But Adam and Eve, just like many of us, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They trusted someone else instead of trusting God. And so that relationship was broken. But God was still pursuing people. And so he made a relationship. He made an agreement. He made a covenant with the people of Israel. And we saw through the commandments and through the law and through uh, what God had established with Moses on Mount Sinai, we saw what our relationship with God needed to be. You know, because there was a breakdown now with our relationship, and there was a constant breakdown every time that we chose the lie over trusting God. And so there was, God was still with us, but there was a division. There was a curtain. There was something that was preventing us from going into the presence of God because we were marred by sin. And then this guy named Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus, because he was God with us, he was Emmanuel. He showed us what God's heart was. He began to reveal to us what God prioritized. And then he did the unthinkable. He died in substitute for us and made a way now for relationship to finally be with God. And then he went to the Father and now is interceding, meaning he is advocating for us currently right now in the throne of heaven. So we see now what our relationship with God can be because of Jesus. And we're in the chapter a day, and we just finished the book of Revelation on Tuesday. And we see a beautiful picture of what's to come, of what our relationship with God will be when everything, all pain, all suffering, all sorrow, all tears, all death will be no more. Every scar Everything that we've dealt with will be undone, and we will live in 
perfect harmony and enjoy God to the fullest of what he has prepared for us. Because no eye can see, no ear can hear, no mind can comprehend what God has in store for us. And that's what our relationship with God will be. And so there's been this plan A all the way from the beginning to our future of what God has had in store for those he loves. And that's all of us because he proved that time and time again with the ultimate example of Jesus. So this today I want to talk about what what's God's plan A for us now? What's God's plan A for us now that we have uh, that there is an opportunity to be right with God? What's what's God's plan A for us for others? And I want to ask you guys two questions, just like Pastor Phil asked uh, a question about why do we exist. Uh, I want to ask you two questions. And I want you to picture this in your mind. When you think of somebody that is fully devoted to God, completely sold out, just a uh, follower of Jesus, totally surrendered, what does that person look like to you? Think about it in your mind. What are, what are their actions? What are their thoughts? What are the things that you can see and recognize when you notice somebody that's like that? What are some characteristics that they have? And the second question I have to ask is, whenever you feel distant from God, whenever you feel like you've maybe fallen out of favor with God, whenever you feel like there's a gap between you and God, what what do you think about doing first? When you want to get back in connection and relationship with God, what, what, what is your thoughts? What are your actions? What are you thinking? Okay, this is what I need to do, or this is how I need to act, or this is how I need to respond to get back in connection with God. Because I believe that God's love requires a response. That God's love for us, there's some sort of measure of response. And so... I want us to pour into that this morning. I want us to, I want the Holy Spirit to speak to each one of you because I know that God has a plan A for you and a God's plan A to work in and through you for this community. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, I, I, I need you. Jesus, thank you so much for everything that you have done. Your love for us is relentless. Your pursuit for us has been relentless. And so, God, I pray in light of your great mercy, in light of what you have done for us, I pray, God, that we will respond in the way that aligns with your heart and your love for not only us, but for everyone around us. And it's in your name. Amen. So this week we find ourselves kind of in a hinge in history. A little backstory to God's relationship with the people of Israel is that uh, when they were freed from slavery in Egypt, uh, they were led out by a man named Moses. Moses took them to a place called Mount Sinai through through the leading of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And on Mount Sinai, Moses received this thing called a covenant 
Now, a covenant was an agreement. It was agreement between God and the people of Israel. And this type of covenant was an I will if you will kind of covenant. It was if you follow me, if you uh, don't worship any other gods, if you love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then here's what I will do. But if, if you don't do those things, then here's the things that I won't do. And so you see throughout history, throughout the entire Old Testament, you see this back and forth relationship that the people of Israel had with God, with being faithful and then being unfaithful. And it just was maddening, and it, and it seemed like it just didn't quite work. But there was something in them that knew that they had to do something to be right with God. And so what it demanded of them was over 600 laws. They had 600 laws that they needed to adhere to that made sure that they were ritually pure, that they were ceremonially clean. And a lot of those laws were based on personal devotion, personal sacrifice. And most of the time, it pushed other people out. It was very exclusive. It was very complicated. And it was extremely challenging for people to stay in right relationship with God. And then, after years and years, thousands of years of this agreement with God, Jesus comes on the scene. And this teacher is different. He's different because he's speaking with authority. He's speaking about, uh, about interpreting the law that they received from God through Moses. And we are in Matthew chapter 5 today, in our chapter a day, and we see Jesus making these outrageous claims of interpreting the law. We see in Matthew 5, 21, and many of you have heard this before in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now, you shall not murder. That's, that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? And those who murder are liable to judgment. But I say that anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to be judged. What? You've heard it said, like, yes, that's the, that's the Ten Commandments. But here's what I say. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But, but here's what I say in application to that. You've heard it said, love your neighbors, hate your enemies. But actually, here's what I say. And so Jesus is coming on, and he is introducing something brand new because he's showing the heart of God, and he's teaching with such authority. But this is disruptive, even to the point, even in that same chapter in Matthew 7, uh, 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, which here, that's this whole part of your Bible. The law and the prophets would be what we refer to as the Old Testament right now. Do not think that I've come to abolish that. But I've come to fulfill them. Who does this guy think he is? So you can imagine Jesus didn't make a lot of friends with the religious leaders. With the people that had been keeping these commands. Who had been devoting their entire lives to keeping the 600 plus, And then all the additions that they added onto commands to be right in relationship with God. And because of that, he was constantly being badgered and pestered by these religious leaders and their cronies constantly when he was teaching. And one of these instances is very famous, and I'm sure you guys mostly know this when you see this, but it's found in Matthew 22, 35 through 40, and it is a lawyer that is going to talk to Jesus. And it says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. 
teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Which is basically saying, another way of saying, what is, what is the greatest priority for God? What's the greatest way to make sure that I'm right with God? What is, what is the thing, if I get right, that I will be good? Everything else, I can work on that, but if I get this one thing, then I'm good. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And of course, everybody in the crowd would nod because that was the Sunday school cookie cutter answer. They knew this from uh, being uh, kids in Sunday school, I guess, and they Sabbath school. And they were knew that this was always the answer. Always love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And before the lawyer has the chance to ask the follow-up question to trap Jesus, Jesus says, he, he takes this opportunity to introduce God's heart. He says, and then the second is like this. And the second is not necessarily less than. It's second in sequence, not second in priority or second in importance. He says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when you find yourself reading the Old Testament, when you find yourself reading scripture from the Old Covenant, and you get confused, all you need to know is love God and love people. Everything hangs on that. And never has this been done before. Because they always knew that Deuteronomy 6.5, which they didn't really have it named that then, but we had a name then. Deuteronomy 6.5 Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength was everything. That was the highest priority. And then now this teacher has added Leviticus 9, 19, 18 to it that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what's really interesting about this is that there's a loophole. See, there's a loophole to that command because that command in its context is meant for your Jewish neighbors. And there was another lawyer that was going to come together, and he was going to challenge Jesus on this question. And Jesus would take that opportunity to reveal the heart of God once more. But to learn about that loophole being closed, you're going to have to come back next week for Pastor Jacob. I know, teasers. <laughs> Just stringing you guys along with that one. So, yeah, plug for next week. Come see Pastor Jacob. He's a cool guy. Um, so if you could sum up these all the commands, 600... And 13 commands, love God and love others. You see, there's a new priority placed on this. And this is disruptive. Because a lot of times it's really easy for us to focus on what I need to do to make God right. What do I need to do to make God happy? And many of you have maybe, and myself included, have asked that question. All right, what do I need to do to make God happy? And in Matthew 5, in the same chapter that we're in today, verses 23 through 24, Jesus turns it all upside down. He says, hey, if you're going to the altar to worship, okay, you're going to give your gift to God. You're going to worship God. You're going to show your love and devotion for God. You're going to show that God is, you're sacrificing for him. He is the greatest priority. He says, if you're doing that, which, I mean, obviously, that's the most important thing we can do, right? But if, if you realize that you have something against your coworker, something against a family member that you haven't really forgiven, or maybe you've treated somebody poorly. You're supposed to leave that, because God can wait. You leave that at the altar, and you go and be reconciled. What? How is that possible? 
How is it possible that we can, we, we're, we're getting ready to show God the ultimate love and devotion. We're getting ready to show him our heart and how much we love him and how much we're willing to give up for him. And he's saying we should wait because there's something more important to be done. Something more important to take care of. John, 1 John 4, 20 through 21 would say it this way. If anyone says they love God in that act of worship and hate his brother, he is a liar. That's not, hey, somebody's struggling. They just got their issues. They're working through it. He's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he can see, has seen, cannot love. Oh, I say, sorry. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, the religious leaders, and I can be honest about this, even myself and probably other people, sometimes we can justify doing something right for God at the expense of other people. Sometimes we can say we're following God and push out and ostracize and reject others. And many of you maybe have even experienced that on your own, in your own life. Maybe you growing up or even recently have encountered somebody that says they love Jesus, but they don't love you. They push you out or they push out one of your loved ones. And it's so hard sometimes to undo that thought process, to undo that idea that, okay, what do I need to do to make myself right with God? And a question that I just kind of want to ask you all is, who do you think the commands of God are for? Like who, what's the priority when it comes to the commands of God? Matt, uh, Mark 2, 23 and 24, Jesus is, uh, is this one Sabbath. He, meaning Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way through, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is un- not lawful on the Sabbath? And then Jesus gives, because obviously he had those those group of religious leaders that constantly followed and badgered Jesus and he's really patient which is awesome but I'm sure he got on his nerves and Jesus gives them this example of of David King David and his friends when they were starving they went into the temple and ate bread that wasn't supposed to be for them it was only supposed to be for the priest and so Jesus is trying to get into their mind priorities what really matters here and then he says this in verse 27 he said to them The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what Jesus is saying here is that laws are for, commandments are for. When you read anything that says you shall not or do or don't or, you know, because of this or just as Christ, when you read any of these imperatives, they are for the benefit of man, not man for the benefit of the law. Meaning God did not create us so he would have someone to follow his laws. There's a pastor, uh, his name Andy Stanley in uh, Georgia, and he would say it this way. He says, you don't have kids so someone can play with the toys. I'll let that sink in. 
we don't have kids so someone can play with the toys. You have toys for the benefit of the kids, not kids for the benefit of the toys. So God did not make people so that he would have somebody to follow his laws. And honestly, I hope this is liberating to some of you this morning. Because some of you think that, that it's really, you know, if I just can't seem to get it right. That I'm always making God mad. I'm always making God upset because I can't follow his laws. And if I keep struggling with these things and he's just constantly mad at me. And God didn't make the laws so that you could have or make people so that somebody would follow his laws. And he could say, ha, I did it. I made a law. I made people, and now they're following my laws. And that was the purpose behind it all. No, the purpose of the law, just like Jesus said, the purpose of everything in the Old Testament is to love God and love people. So anytime you read anything that's an imperative for us, it's because we need to love people. Do not steal. That's loving. Do not lie. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. That is loving the other person. But there's something ingrained in us. There's something ingrained in our conscience that we think that if we follow God's commands that he'll finally be happy with us. And if we defend God's commands and attack those who oppose God's commands, that we'll be on the right side of God. And Jesus is saying that no, your priorities are off. That people matter. That people matter more than the law. And these are all breadcrumbs leading to the moment when Jesus was going to change everything in our relationship with God. You see, the night before Jesus died, he revealed a new way, a new way of being devoted to God, a new way of being right with God. He was instituting a new covenant, a new relationship, but not with God in Israel, God in the world. And this covenant was going to be in his blood. And just like Moses' covenant that came with its 600 plus laws, there was going to be some terms and conditions to this covenant. But it wouldn't be 600. It wouldn't even be the two that Jesus whittled it down to. It would be one commandment. And this is the commandment. In John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, you are to love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, the disciples would have some context to the love of Jesus because they were not the A-team when it came to spiritual people. They were a bunch of uneducated fishermen there was a tax collector in there who was the most hated person alive when it came to the Jewish people. There was zealots. There was all kinds of riffraff. But Jesus brought them into his inner circle and accepted them. And so they would know when Jesus was talking, even in that moment, how much he had loved them. But in a few days, their context would blow wide open. Because Jesus would do what no one saw coming. That even though they had rejected and denied him, even though they had run away, even though they felt like God had let them down and Jesus had disappointed them, that Jesus would die for them. And he would die for everything that they did, past, present, and future. And then he would make them the new presence of the Lord. We would, we would become the new temple. No longer would there be a division between God and man because of this big, thick veil. That, that would be torn. And now God 
would be living in us through his spirit. Things changed. No longer now would there be 600 laws for us to memorize. To look holy. To act holy. Worrying about comparing ourselves to other people. Being moral policemen. We would have one law. And one law only. One requirement. And that is to love others the way that Jesus has loved us. And that Jesus loves them. So when you don't know what to do when it comes to interacting with people, when you want to know if you're on the right side of God, all you need to ask yourself is this. What does love require of me? What does the love of Christ require of me? What does the love love of Christ require of me to a boss that doesn't see what I'm doing? What does love require me to a coworker that slanders me? What does love require me to the family member that has rejected me? betrayed me? What does love require of my classmates and the ones that bully me? What does love require? You see, Jesus is brilliant. I mean, obviously, he's the son of God, so yes, he is brilliant, but it's crazy that here, see, I know myself. I'll be vulnerable with you guys. You give me a list of rules, I'm going to find a loophole. Drove my parents crazy. When I was a teenager, it was like, oh, hold on, mom and dad. Well, you said to be home at this time, but you didn't specify which time zone. So technically, on Pacific Standard Time, I am actually early. Yeah, God bless them. Or, hey, you know, you said I couldn't go over to my friend's house until I finished my homework, but you didn't say anything about my friends coming over, and so technically everything's all right. Don't use this. It won't work. I promise. And so we, I knew this about myself, but can I, can we say this as believers and Christians that I think a lot of us like to be professional loophole finders when it comes to God? That we will, uh, We'll see how close we can get. Okay, God, I, what, what, is this technically a sin? Because I really want to do this, but I know that, like, it doesn't say that specifically in Scripture that, like, I'm not supposed to do this, but I really want to. But really what I'm more concerned about is not necessarily that I'm hurting somebody else or that I'm doing something wrong. I just don't want you to get angry at me, God. So where's the happy medium between you're not angry at me and me doing what I want to do? And... With the one commandment, there's no loopholes. You can't hide in between. You can hide him in between two commandments. But with one commandment, there's none. Well, I want to do, what does love require of you? Well, God, is this technically, well, what does love require of you? Well, if I really want to do this, is this going to be, well, what does love require of you? You see, even in the first century, they didn't even have scriptures. They had the, they had the Torah, but really, they just needed to know one thing. Love others the way that Jesus loved you. That's all they needed to know. The New Testament hangs on that. The whole Bible hangs on that. Our religion hangs on that. Everything else is just commentary, application, and history. Paul would say it this way in Galatians 5, 6. He would say there's only one thing that counts, and that's faith expressing itself in love. 
So when we look at the applications of this great love, what do we see? We see Colossians 3.13. Forgive just as Christ has forgiven you. Now what's amazing is that Jesus is being brutally murdered in one of the most horrific deaths possible unjustly, and then he's being insulted unjustly, and he is still able to, to look and see at his accusers and his murderers and say, I forgive you. Isn't there kind of something audacious about the fact that we won't be able to forgive other people if Jesus is able to do that in that situation? Because I don't think we've been there. What about Romans 15, 17? 7, sorry. Accept others just as Christ has accepted you. Think about the God of the universe accepting us when we had totally rejected him and we were totally ostracized from him. Before we even had the chance to love, he did everything possible to accept us and bring us into relationship with him, even with the possibility of rejecting him. If he would go that lengths to accept us, what do you think it would look like to go to somebody that maybe doesn't think like you, vote like you, act like you or believe like you? What about Ephesians 5.21? Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. If Christ, who is all authority, all power, everything in him, he deserves all the praise and all the glory. We just sang about his reckless love. But what did he do? He submitted and humbled himself. He served us and he loved us. Do you think we might be able to lay down our ego to love other people? Romans 12.10, take delight in honoring one another. Honor one another. This is the new purity ethic. Because now it's no longer about how close I can get when it comes to purity. Now you're honoring that other person. And not only honoring that other person, you're honoring their spouse and their future spouse. There is no wiggle room there. Honor one another, even if it's consensual. So what's God's plan A for his followers? We are to love and follow in the example of Christ's great love for us and love other people. You see, the mark of devotion to God is not how often we read the Bible, pray, or go to church. And please don't burn me at the stake. Please don't. Those are amazing things. I love the word of God. I love this church. You people are amazing. This community is awesome. But often, we'll use those as the avenue of making sure we're right with God. So how do I get right with God? Okay, well, I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to go to church. And those are all wonderful things, but maybe we've missed it when it's come to priority. Maybe we're bringing our sacrifice instead of laying it down, and being reconciled. So what would it look like then to say, all right, I'm going to get right with God, so I'm going to love my family. I'm going to love and serve my kids. I'm going to love and serve my coworkers. I'm going to love and serve my classmates. I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to love those who hate me, who talk bad about me, because I'm going to get right with God. You see, this new ethic, this new requirement, even though it doesn't, it's not 600 laws, so, so simple, but it's far, far more demanding. 
far more demanding. So, if you're like me, I have this thing that pulls inside of me, this part of my conscience that still struggles with wanting to do what I can to be right with God. And there's, it's an old way. It's an old way of trying to show my devotion to the Lord. And it's, I'm committed to that self-discipline. I'm committed to that, and sometimes at the expense of other people. And so I've got a few questions to ask you all that I have to ask myself because I struggle with this too. The first one is this. Do I feel more guilty about missing church or reading the Bible than you have about the way you treat other people? Whether it's a family member, co-worker, classmate, do you feel more guilty about not reading the Bible than you do about how you treat other people? Next question. When you have morally sinned or failed or maybe felt like you disappointed God or you just made the wrong choice, are you more concerned about God being angry at you than you are about the person that you've sinned against or betrayed? Are you more concerned about God's anger towards you than you are about the person that you have hurt? Another question. Do you feel like there is some sort of ritual or some sort of prayer you can pray to ask for forgiveness from God that absolves you of restoring or seeking out restitution with the one that you've hurt? Do you feel like you can pray a prayer and you're good? And that you don't feel like you need to go and restore that relationship with the other person? Do you I should say, do other people's sins elicit some sort of response of superiority or even judgment? Or does, do you respond with compassion? Are you broken when you see people making the wrong choices? Does it elicit superiority or compassion? And last, do your beliefs or your theology or your do's and your don'ts, do they ever get in the way of your love. Do any of those things ever get in the way of your love? Because I, I, I listen, I'm not here to just bash you over the head because I'm, I'm hitting myself in the process. This is not easy because we just, we've, we've had this ingrained in us that we just need to make ourselves right with God. And to be honest, many of you have experienced that. You've been on the receiving end of somebody being right with God and pushing you away and rejecting you. But we are called to a different ethic. We are called to a different standard. If we are to be devoted followers, we have one commandment. We have one ethic. We have one mark that shows that we are disciples. And it's when we worship by the way we love people. It's when... We worship by the way that we forgive people. So if the band will come up. God's plan A. God's plan A for us is that we would be radically changed by his love and we would radically extend that love to other people. That if we, if 
if people see us, they see us as, hey, I don't, they believe some crazy things. You know, they go to church, they, they prioritize different things than I do, but man, they really love people. Is that what, is that the impression that we give? Is that the impression that we give at work? Is that the impression that we give with our family members or the people that have hurt us or betrayed us? God's plan A for your marriage is that you would love that person, your spouse, the way Christ loves them and loves you regardless of what they've done or whether they, they deserve it. Because most likely they don't deserve it. You don't either. But God is good and Jesus is so loving and he deserves it. God's plan A for the people we work with, for our classmates, is that they would see the love that God has for them through us. Regardless of what they do to us, regardless of how slighted, how insulted, how much they've hurt us, our plan, God's plan A is that they would see the love of Jesus through us. For those that don't think, act, honestly, those who we could say they're breaking all kinds of laws. They need, they need to know that Jesus loves them and they need to know that through you. Because that's God's plan A. This commandment is so radical. It's so simple. So ask yourself this week, ask yourself in your relationships with your spouse, with your kids, those who are close to you, what does love require of me? When you're wrestling about what to do in a situation, ask yourself, what does love require of me? Because Jesus didn't hold it back at all, and I'm so thankful for that. So before we go into application with this series, we have one more loophole to close, and I alluded to that earlier. And so come back next week so that we can close all the excuses and love people because that's God's plan A for us but also for others. Let's pray. Lord, forgive me because I struggle with this. I struggle with my own ego, with my own insecurities. I struggle, Lord, when people don't respond or treat me the way that I feel like I deserve. So God, disarm me of that. Help me to just love people regardless. Help me to pursue people. Help me to see those that are need, that have needs and have hurts, that have experienced so much pain. Help me to pursue the ones that have even hurt me because that's what you did for me. I had betrayed you. I have abandoned you. I have let you down. I have I have said that you're a liar, God, and I am so sorry, but you pursued me, and you loved me regardless of that. And so, God, may this love transform us. May it change us, Lord, that we no longer look at the old way, the old way of being right with God by pushing people out, God, by discriminating, by, by 
pushing away people that are not like us, but God, help maybe run towards those people that are not like us because that's what you did for me and that's what you did for us. That was the example that you set, Jesus, to show the heart of God because at the heart of everything, God, you love people and you did everything to show you love people. Help us to do the same.